Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 83 of the podcast. 83. That's right. Are you excited about those? Oh, I'm so excited. I'm using the E word. <laughs> How are you feeling tonight? No, really. Uh, not too bad. Not too I bad. like I like the dusk vibe here at Vomitorium East. Yep, we're doing a, a nighttime podcast right. at, at this time. It always feels good to get back in the, Correct. in the East where it all began. It did really all begin here. Well, it began on my deck, if you remember. It was a July day. It was. I remember it very fondly. Yes. Is it time for a cheesy clip show? <laughs> it might be. I think... I think uh, number 100 should be Cheesy Clip 100 show. should be the Cheesy yeah, Clip We're closing show. in. We're closing in on it. But if you yeah. take all 83 episodes and you put together the best of, yeah. what's that, run for 10 minutes maybe? A, 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 a solid eight. <laughs> a solid eight yeah, minutes. Exactly. Pack some ads on the end. Right, exactly. There's, there's a gurgle. What's with ads. Yeah, right. Right, right, right. So Jeff, you're feeling well tonight? I'm feeling t- I'm feeling well tonight. It's been a while since we've done a nighttime, pod- nighttime uh, recording. And That's so right. I'm feeling good. I mm-hmm. like it. Yep. Yeah. Good vibe. The solitude, right? Yeah, the solitude, the lighting. It's a, it's, it's all good. good. Yeah. So what are we talking about this evening? We're uh, we're talking the we're talking Aeneid. Ah. It's going to be our first uh, full length episode. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a, um, a fairly lengthy treatment of yes. a very important uh, work from this, Roman history. Yeah. This should get us to about number one twenty three or so, I would think. Wait, right. I, I'm, I feel like I'm going to have to kind of rein you in a yes. little bit. Right. I love this stuff though. Right. I know you do. Well, I do too. And yeah. and I've taught more. Although I began with Greek uh, mm-hmm. as a student, I've had more occasion to teach the Aeneid than the other epics. Now, have you taught him uh, in um, in language or in like in translation? I think I have taught it uh, as a Latin course, uh, Latin 200 something or 300, probably seven times. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, quite a lot. And then I have taught it in maybe 11 or 12 myth courses. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's a lot of exposure. It is a lot of exposure. Now, let me just ask you as we right. set uh, on this course, um, 12 books of the Aeneid, pick your favorite. What's your favorite book? Two. Two. Without hesitation. Really? Yes. Right. I'm a six guy. You're a six guy. Yeah, you like, like the underworld? I love the underworld, right? Well, neither of us are Ovid, right? No. We, which is uh, everyone reads of Aeneas in Dido's arms and throws away the rest. Exactly. Well, yeah, that, that always kind of irritated me. Yeah. So, it's envy on Ovid's part. Come on. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, I mean, book four, uh, great stuff. Brilliant. Brilliant stuff, but um, I think it's uh, it's gotten... Uh, uh, it's gotten too much. Uh, it's gotten too much uh, stage time. Yes. Well, what we have to do here is, I think, try to resuscitate the Iliadic portion, books seven through twelve. Yeah. People don't give them the credit they deserve. Right. Well, I, I think that extends to uh, today. Um, if uh, if like a high school class has a right. has a choice to be teaching the between the Odyssey and the Iliad, they invariably cho- choose the Odyssey. That's right. right? right? That's, that's right. I think that same kind of um, bias okay. is here. Yep. Right. But I'm with you. We we need to. Uh, take that part seriously and and um, and celebrate it as it deserves. Yes, probably my favorite character, or one of my favorite characters in the entire epic is Camilla. Camilla, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, and and who I think kind of gets erased from the conversation. Yes, she does. Yep, we need to fix that. Yeah, but before we do that, let's give our shout out. Yeah, so this shout out this week goes to we have another New Zealander. Yes, no more of these bossy Aussies. No, no more bossy Aussies. We got the Kiwis. That's right, coming a New in, Zealander coming in strong. And, and this, this, is, this go is, ahead, uh, Isaac Jones, Mr. Isaac Jones from Hamilton, New Zealand. Give us a little bit of his shout out. Well, he you? says in terms of the shout out, that would be cool. 
They, they seem like a calm people. They are very laid back. Really? Very, very stoic. Right. I love the, um, and a great sense of humor, but very, very kind of understated. I love that. Yes, I'd very, fit in there. He's very British. Yeah. He says, you can't, you can just say I'm from Hamilton, New Zealand, if you don't want to try saying Nagara Wahai. Did you practice that today? Just a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> I said, cancel all my appointments. I'm working on this Maori word for the afternoon. Right. This must be the indigenous name of the, I think so. of, the, of the place. Yes. He says, I enjoy drinking and making coffee a lot. Studying a master of arts in Christian and classical studies alongside his MDiv. Right. I have listened to every single episode of Ad Nauseam. No, that's what I like to hear. Wow. Every single one. Right. Wow. Mostly while working hanging safety nets, what? just residential ones before the roofs went on. Hmm. I, I, do you exactly know what he's talking about? I think that you hang a safety net and then the roofers on the on on the roof, you know, if they were to trip and fall, they're caught there. They're caught. I'm guessing that's it. Or maybe catching the materials. That I might... was thinking that as well, yeah. so they don't fall on, uh, you know, passersby. Yeah, right, that's right. that's probably what it is. Okay. You know, if it's in an urban setting. Yes. He says these are rather menial jobs that I had between barista jobs. I particularly enjoyed the Odyssey series. Thank you. Well, see, this is what we've done, Jeff. We yes. have so beaten up on that. Uh, series which has not gotten the same kind of response that right. now people in their kindness are contacting us to tell us specifically i liked it do you think they're telling the truth or they're just trying to kind i of don't care it? <laughs> <laughs> telling the truth or not keep it coming uh he also liked how many ships can your face launch yes the one about uh, helen and gorgias yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh the one on memory episode 18 i think look at that guy right dropping references this was the one that you entitled cranks for the memories oh, one, of, one of my finer ones i yeah. have to say yeah. okay all right fascinating <laughs> alongside the other episodes your podcast has lit a flame of desire to be great at latin and greek in order to enjoy thoroughly the classics and to learn from the church fathers that's very nice that's isn't very it? very nice fantastic can you share a little bit about the uh the coffee method that our friend isaac jones uses right well uh so listeners uh the full second paragraph that that mr jones sent us is about coffee incredible it makes me i mean i feel a little intimidated more than a little i right. would say I mean, I mean with all the ratio ads i thought in, in owning a ratio i thought right. hey, I, I know my coffee but peak of the game i, I know nothing well, I know nothing, right? Not compared to Isaac. Not, no. Listen so, to what he says. He says, I use a pour over with a gooseneck kettle that is temperature controlled along with a scale and grinder that most would consider too much for a manual grinder. Uh, so hearing adverts for ratio coffee pleases me as I enjoy watching uh, our slow progression into full, full-blown full coffee snobbery. He thinks we're progressing into full-blown coffee snobbery. Well, he, I, what I hear there is he's just saying, ah, you're, you're, you're not there yet. Up your game. <laughs> Up your game. Right, right. <laughs> So he, uh, he represented New Zealand at the International Barista Champs. Incredible. Got to the semifinals. Yeah. I don't know how, you would, how that goes or how that's judged, but I don't know. it's impressive. It is impressive. You know, barista is actually, maybe I've mentioned it before, it's a word of Latin origin. It, it, what does it mean? Well, it's a taberna, right? It's a yeah. shop. A tabernista ah. is a shopkeeper, and from tabernista comes barista. Barista. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Interesting, huh? Yep. He says, I am head barista at the cafe I work at, which means being incredibly fastidious in making coffee down to measuring each dose to point one of a gram wow and he gets mathy here yeah okay and keeping shots within a couple of seconds on total coffee brewed Uh, for instance we keep our espresso at a ratio of yeah more math etc okay (laughs) let's let's wrap it up isaac <laughs> oh man! So I mean, he, he ends with some 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 tips that I'm yes. going to take to heart if I want to improve right. my, up my coffee game. It's nothing I love more than unsolicited advice. Right. <laughs> so thank you, Isaac. All right, so Dave, we're talking we're talking Aeneid tonight. We're going to talk. Uh, we're going to get into book one, and there's no way we're going to come close to even finishing book one. Oh, not not tonight. No way. But uh, you're going to start us with a with an opening quote from one uh, Mr. Brooks Otis. That's correct. 
Yes, this is from his 1963 work, a classic, highly recommended from University of Oklahoma Press. I think it might be in a reprint paperback. That's what I have, at least. Brooks Otis Virgil, A Study in Civilized Poetry. This is from page 200 to 22. Essentially, the real plot of the Aeneid is that of the formation and victory of the Augustan hero. Virgil selected Aeneas as his hero because he happened to be the one Theos Aner, the man who achieved divine status, of Roman tradition who actually belonged to the Homeric saga itself. Hercules was only incidentally connected with Rome, Romulus was already historical, in scare quotes, and thus alien to the epic heroic milieu. But Aeneas, of course, is meant to be the prototype as well as the mythical ancestor of Augustus. Ah, so he's, he's doing double duty there. That's right. right. Yeah, so um, I'm sure as many of our listeners are aware, uh, the story of Aeneas had um, long been part of kind of Roman, the, the Roman legacy, the Roman heritage and, and, and history before Virgil gets his hand on the story. So Virgil did not invent no. the story, and he didn't even give it um, its first real kind of epic treatment. That's I, right. It, it's the one that that um, that lives on. It's the one that it was the one that worked. Correct. Right. Um, but and- yeah, please and, go. And covered by Latin archaic poets, yes. uh, specifically Livius Andronicus and uh, a fellow named Nivius, and of course, most of all, Ennius. Yes. So Ennius and his Annales, um, early Roman poet, he connects the events of the founding of Rome with the fall of Troy right. via Aeneas. It's all there really explicitly. Right. So for our listeners who might not be as familiar with this stuff, Aeneas was, um, he, he's in the Iliad. Right. He has, um, he's uh, one of the great Trojan warriors. Priam's he had, nephew. Priam's nephew, son of Venus, um, has kind of his, his his moment of glory on the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, his Aristea. His Aristea, exactly. When he opposes uh, Achilles, and Achilles says, look, you know, you're great, son of the goddess, but I don't want to kill you. Go back where you belong, right. basically, because I'm I'm just uh, I'm just um, way too much for you. You're, you're overmatched. And at that point, remember, Poseidon reaches in and grabs Aeneas off the battlefield and throws him way back behind the Trojan line. That's right. Yeah. In order to save him. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, Aeneas is really upset about this because this was going to be his moment of glory, but. No, he's just no Achilles. He, he can't compare. He can't compare, right? Um, but there's this larger tradition that Aeneas was fated to be one of the few Trojans uh, to survive the war, to escape, and um, found a new Troy somewhere in um, Hesperia, in the west. That's right. And that was kind of that loose thread of legend that the Romans uh, grasped upon and wove their own tapestry of their own um, their own myths and connected it to their own history. Yes, brilliantly. Yes. So. Um, I mean, I, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to talk about a, a bit is, uh, so Virgil's clearly tapping into Homer here, right? Uh, he, in the very first line of the Aeneid, Arm, uh, Arma kano, I sing of arms and the man, he gives away the game. I'm singing about war, and I'm singing about the man. I'm singing an Iliad, and I'm singing an Odyssey. Here. Yes, and I'm reversing the order. I'm reversing the order, right. Right, so because the, because the first six books are the Odysseic portion. Yes, and the second books are the Iliadic. Right, the, I mean, there's as I was rereading book one, it, um, that was one of many reversals. Yes, that I was noticing that I think that Virgil's kind of is um, he's having a lot of fun. I think, Absolutely, you know, playing playing this game. But one of the things that makes Virgil and Homer so um, distinct, distinctly uh, unique, different is that you know Homer is this poet that kind of floats outside of time. Right? Yes. There's still there's still debates as we've talked about on this on this very podcast. 
if he's even a real right. figure or not, right? You, you can go back to, um, I don't know if it's episode five. It's pretty early. Very early. History and the Trojan War. Yeah. You can look up the Dennis Page and Joachim Latash stuff about the historicity of the war, but the person of Homer, completely different, like you're saying. Exactly, right. So he kind of floats outside of time and, and outside of of, uh, of culture, but Virgil is so embedded right. in a very specific time and place. He's very specifically tying these legends to specific events in Roman history that it quickly, um, you don't have to read too much to figure out that he's doing something very different. Yep. Yeah. Here's a reference I think you'll like. Uh, the unique thing about Virgil is that although he's completely in a, in an historical moment, right, uh, the beginning of the Augustan era, like that quote from uh, Brooks Otis gave us, he is nevertheless mythologizing in a way that takes us back before all of this happened. Right. And it's kind of like the way in which comic books in the 20th century, the more popular and plausible ones are set in actual cities that we know about. Hmm. Right. Like uh, Spider-Man is in New York City. Yes. Right. The ones who are set in more fantastic places, even though, you know, the whole thing is make believe it's somehow less relatable if there isn't an element of uh, history inserted somewhere. Yeah. No, I. I, Does that fit? It totally fits. That totally fits. Right. It it goes. um, I have a a perfect preference when it comes to like pop music. Right. If a pop song mentions a, like a specific street yes that immediately grabs my attention right and it becomes immediately less generic and something okay. completely relatable and i think that virgil's doing that here so what you really hate is that very famous starship song we built the city yes which during the the kind of uh, the bridge in the middle where they have the, they play the radio, the radio announcer, guy yeah. and, but they changed it no matter in what city it was played yes. right for uh, I guess universal appeal. It's Seattle. It's the city. It's San Francisco. It's a city by the bay. It's yeah. Miami. You didn't go for that. Infuriating. You hate that, right? It's like they, they took a, they took a good thing, and they just made it into a, a, a just a, a giant bowl of schlock by trying to apply it too broadly. Exactly, and not uh, attaching it to a specific detail. Right. So if they'd kept it, you know, it was the song is about San Francisco. Right. I guess. Yes. Okay. And, and if they had just kept it there, I, I would have been. I still would have hated the song, but <laughs> it would have irritated me much less. Okay. Right. All okay. right. We're getting off the path here. Okay. Right? Right. You just don't want to talk about Starship. <laughs> oh my God. What, not, did, what did we build this podcast on? Oh man, man, it's, it's just awful. Can we get past it? Okay. Yes. All right. All right. So, um, one, you were talk, we were talking earlier. And I thought this was really interesting. I hadn't really even thought about it before. That, um, but I think it goes with this this notion of kind of Virgil's throwing us back into kind of a Homeric mythologizing. Um, that uh, Virgil, of course, is on the other side of Plato. Correct. And um, but he does not seem, especially in his depiction of the gods. That's right. And notions of divinity, it's not kind of a post-Platonic. World. That's right. That is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. It yeah. seems when the when the reigning zeitgeist to throw in some Portuguese when the zeitgeist you're supposed to chuckle, Jeff. <laughs> we'll we'll fix that in post. It's German. <laughs> it's not Portuguese. Anyway, uh, is that all serious intellectuals are looking at the world through Stoic or Platonic, yeah. or Epicurean or um, academic uh, lenses? E- even our man Lucretius, yeah. right? The whole enchilada. Uh, the gods in his story, they're totally a device. Yes. They really have nothing to do with his scientific and philosophical interests. Exactly, exactly. So um, it takes a poet of tremendous talent to make such a world plausible and to deal with serious moral issues with a mythology that I, I think by Virgil's time was completely discredited. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, in terms of just kind of raw storytelling, though. Yes. Like, and we we did those episodes on Lucretius, right? And it was fascinating stuff. But um, if I'm gonna, if I want to rip, roar, and yarn, yeah. and I have De Rerum Natura or the the Aeneid in front of me, right? Which one am I grabbing? Well, that's easy choice, right? So, do you so do you think that like in the so um, you know Lucretius and and Virgil, rough contemporaries, right? Right. Um, do you think that when the Aeneid was published? Uh, the public would have seen. Well, this is kind of, this is old. I like it, but it's old timey. Or like this, I think so. This they is, would have found it in, not been done in so long. I think or? they would have found it entirely new. In fact, that is part of the thesis of a Brooks Otis book. If I can just read um, <clears throat> from a little bit of the blurb, yeah, that you can find on the back of the book. In this classic study, Brooks Otis presents Virgil as a radically different poet from any of his Greek or Roman predecessors. Mm. I would say, with the exception of Homer. Yeah. He, he's not radically different from Homer. There are some interesting points of departure, but he has completely subsumed uh, the genius of Homer in his work. Right. And that's what makes it incredible. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. So I think that, you know, no Homer, no Virgil, obviously. Right. But it's what Virgil does with Homer. And we're going to talk a bit about these these reversals, I think is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where he he kind of he takes the takes the old and makes it completely new. Yeah, here's another potential illustration, and, and I got this from a an old friend, a philosophy professor, uh, a friend of mine named Greg Smith. I don't think Dr. Greg Smith is listening, but uh, he was singing the praises of Augustine, and he said, you know, Augustine of Hippo is a man that when you're reading him, you can't tell where the line between his own thoughts and the words of scripture is. Mm. When you're reading Augustine, you know, you think you're getting his thoughts and then suddenly it's a quotation from the Psalms or Timothy or something like that. Yeah. Because he had so completely, um, you know, melded his mind with a, a scriptural way of thinking about the world. Yeah. So by way of analogy, I think this is what Virgil has done with Homer. Oh, I like that he has lot. just yeah. He has just completely uh, imbibed Homer's spirit. So where does where does Homer end and Virgil begin? Exactly. When, he, when Virgil's at his best, you can't tell. That's right. Yeah. Man. So in our first gurgle, yes. um, we, we covered the first seven lines of the Aeneid. Yes. And I don't want to spend a lot of time rehashing no, can't that. Do the that. listener can easily do that. It's a short little piece. 15 minutes. Um, but is there anything from the, at least the, these opening uh, 10, 11 lines that you wanted to zoom in on before right. we jump into themes? Well, uh, I think we should uh, pick it up here at about line eight. Musa mahikasas memora quo numina liso. And mm-hmm. I want to look at this ablet of absolute here, this quo numina liso. Uh, or this interrogative, I suppose. Uh, Muse, tell me the causes. Remind me of the reasons, mihi causas memora. Which divinity was uh, torqued? Which one was upset, right? Yeah. So we've got this word here, uh, numine, mm-hmm. right? The divine presence. And we've got the participle lyso from lido litera, which mm-hmm. means to wound. So again, here is the Homeric idea that the gods are giant children filled with the passions and angers. Yeah that characterize human beings, but just on a, you know, a scale of magnitude much higher than we can imagine. Yes, way more human than human. Exactly. Yeah. So who was it? Or or uh, grieving over what? This is the line nine. Quid regina deum tot casus. What caused the queen of the gods to punish a man who was marked out in signem for his pietate? So, so Jeff, what, what are we to think about this concept of pietate here in line number 10? Well, so one of the, the you know the notable adjective that that is often applied to Aeneas, and, and one that he even applies to himself within the narrative is Pius Aeneas. That's right. Which which kind of the 
the lazy translation of that is pious. Yes. Aeneas. Uh, he, but when you think of piety, what here in the you know the beginning of the 21st century, what connotations does it conjure up? It, it conjures up kind of um, you know hands pressed together in a halo. In a, right. You know, it's kind of a. A, a quiet, you know, spiritual obedience. Yes, maybe uh, walking quietly, meditating on the world. Yes, exactly. But that is that is not the pietas that um, that the Romans um, no. they wouldn't have understood it in that particular. No, way. not right. at all. I don't think. Right. So I've always thought, you know, the, the Roman pietas, you know, marked by piety, it's with uh, its duty and obligation. Right. Particularly to one's ancestors, particularly your father, yeah, and um, the gods too, but particularly the household. Gods, that's right, the local gods. Right? That's that's why the the famous painting I can't remember who it is right now, but of Aeneas holding and Anchises on his shoulder, yes, uh, gripping Ascanius by his hand. This is the perfect picture of Roman Pietas. Right. And it, He's supporting yes. tradition on his shoulder, and often Ascanius himself is exactly is. is, is um, is holding the household gods. Yes, the yes. Penates, yes. because he's the bearer of religious tradition. And also, um, Aeneas is leading his son Ascanius by the hand, so he's responsible for guaranteeing the future. Yeah. That's that's pie, piety or pietas in a Roman sense. It has really almost nothing to do with sentiment. Right. It's all about duty. Duty. What have you done? I don't think that Aeneas is uh, really very joyful in this epic at all. No. This is one of the common criticisms, that he is a pale, bland character. He's a downer. Correct. And we'll get to the, the first scene where That's we right. see him. He's, he's blubbing at the start. That's right. right. He, yep. sh- he shows up and says, Sum pius Aeneas, I'm pious Aeneas. But it doesn't seem to be a lot of emotion in it. No. And uh, that's because piety is not about sentiment in the Roman world. Right. And, and, and Aeneas is, he carries this weight of destiny, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, Virgil's very clear that um, he's, going to, he's going to suffer into things, the fruition of, of which he himself is not going to see. Correct. Yeah. Do you think Aeneas could uh, maybe enter our intern program? <laughs> uh, he's carrying schle- the weight. Oh, he's schle- as a schlepper? Yeah, if he's carrying the weight of destiny, maybe he could carry some other things <laughs> for us. <laughs> he's a, he's a, like, as long as you got that, right. <laughs> pick up these sacks. Here's a container of uh, water bottles. <laughs> he'd be a great schlepper. He would. Right. He might mumble and kind of complain a little bit, yeah. but you'd push him along right. and tell him he's fated to do these things. Yeah, he's like that Marvel character. Which uh, guy? Groot. Right, the Groot. tree guy. Right, who, who just says, "I am Groot." Yes, yeah, sum pius Aeneas. Yeah, just from place to place. That's right. I like it. Hey, I wanted to just—I think it's the the very first. Uh, well, it's not. No, it's not the first mention of the gods, but even that word numine, right? That is the the numen, a divine presence. Right, is strikes me as as a very kind of. Uh, Virgil is carving out. This is Roman, not Greek. That's true. Right. There's no notion that you know a a grove or a a corner right. uh, could be god haunted. Right. Is not a very Greek idea. No, it isn't. Right. And and then and, and to add to that, this notion that the familia, the importance of the family. I really right. want to do my Godfather here. Right. Right. Um, that. Um, that that duty to one's ancestry and to the future generations. It's not that family wasn't important to the Greeks, but that it was that, different. The duty to that line is right. something very uniquely Roman. I don't believe that the Greeks hung in their hallways images of their ancestors. Exactly, exactly right. The masks of the right. of their, of the, their dead um, ancestors. The right. manes. So the la- the last item I hear, I suppose, would be line eleven. Can the gods, can heavenly minds have so much anger? So this is a very leading question, which I suppose um, is intended to get us thinking about, uh, does divine malevolence drive this entire epic? 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you think that's kind of a, um, as I'm just looking at the line here, is it, do you think it's a kind of a, there's an embedded criticism there? A like, little bit. Like, the, the, why, they're so, why, why would they have so much anger? Right. So yeah. we spent quite a bit of time earlier in this episode, you know, saying how much Virgil has imbibed the spirit of Homer. Yeah. But of course, there are also key differences. And I would say this is one of those differences. The gods are more or less a given in the world of Homer. Yeah. And uh, when Homer talks about the gods' morality, um, he typically uh, talks in terms of their displeasure with human beings for not living up to their standards. Hmm. Um, And he pokes some gentle fun at them. Uh, But for Virgil, there are deep moral questions involved that poke through from time to time. Okay, okay. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out for those things. Yes. Yes. So Dave... Who is this Newman? Who is this this goddess that's so angry? Well, it's Juno. It's Juno. Exactly. Right. The original wicked stepmother. Right. She she plays such a thankless role in so many of the stories attached to her, she, you know, having to um, put up with her husband slash brother's infidelities. Um, and so she, I mean, so she, I think that, you know, Virgil's, he's he's tapping into that well-known mythological notion of, of Juno slash Hera being um, a put upon angry deity. Correct. She has to constantly uh, fix the philandering mess that her husband makes. Yes. Okay, Dave. So Juno's angry, but Juno's always angry. Yeah. Why is she angry here? Well, she has so many reasons. We can't even begin to enumerate them. Well, could you give us at least a couple here? <laughs> sure. It's Carthage, right? It's Carthage. She loves the city of Carthage. It's inhabited by a Tyrian colonists. Okay. It stands opposite Italy, far from the Tiberine shores and so forth. Yeah. And she just really loves this place. Yes, yes. Have you been to Carthage? I have not. I have. And tell me about it. It's It's magnificent. You can still see the... Uh, the harbor and the um, the the boathouse, the kind of the octagonal, um, uh, uh, kind of shaped, kind of um, man-made harbor that the Carthaginians built, mm. and, and you can on a clear day you can see all the way to to Sicily. It's it's incredible. I am envious. Yeah, because I would love to see Carthage. Yeah, it, it's 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 amazing. I can see how a, a goddess or, or others would fall in love with it. Right. But I I gotta say one of the things I don't like is I I still don't fully understand. Okay, so Juno loves Carthage. But I don't get exactly why. I mean, so Virgil tells us she keeps her chariot and her weapons there. That's right. So what? It's a it's a garage, right? <laughs> I, it, you don't love the place where you store your items. I, I'm not a big fan of. Maybe it's because my, I have kind of a small, crappy garage. Okay. And so it's never been a big place for me. The goal is um, to get the vehicle in there as soon as possible and to get yourself out of it. Yeah, more or less as quickly as possible. Exactly. It, it's so cramped that you barely have any room like, yes. between the weed whacker and to get out of there. So right. But I, I thought that was kind of odd that Virgil mentioned. That uh, well, that's where she stores her chariot. Right. Um, is that enough to yeah. to? I don't know. Fall in love. Have you seen place? these ads for the brand new epoxy floor you can put in your garage? Well, that would be nice. Yes. Yeah. That'd be very nice. <laughs> I'd spend more time in my garage if I had an epoxy floor. Exactly. And, and that's, drain. That's yeah. probably what Juno has. <laughs> okay. Where she stores her weapons in her chariot. It's all epoxy from wall to wall. Right. Um, but on a more serious note, it does seem that Virgil is suggesting that that Juno is kind of throwing her her kind of her own honor her own lot in with the Carthaginians. She wants to see this place run the world. That's right. The world, right? And she identifies with Dido. She loves Dido mm-hmm. and has uh, cherished Dido, I think, as a woman after her own heart. Okay. That is uh, a woman whose husband was faithful to her, but was murdered uh, by yeah. the brother-in-law. 
um, that is by Pygmalion, uh, Dido's own brother. Yeah. Um, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think Dido is like a Juno character. That's really interesting. A woman of great authority. Right. Now, we, now we're sp- talking about reversals. Yes. It reminds, to compare this with the Odyssey, of course, uh, Odysseus, the, the titular her- hero, um, is a man after Athena's own heart. That's right. That she connection. says, I love you. I love you, Odysseus. I uh, I love him because he's like me. Yeah. He's witty. He's clever. He can lie. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but if you compare it to, uh, you know, the main hero here, Aeneas, his protector deity is his mom, Venus. But there, there's not that kind of simpatico relationship nope. that you see there. So it's... More Portuguese. He's, he's using... <laughs> he's, he's, Virgil's... Um, he's placing kind of the Homeric relationship on ultimately this tragic character who exactly who will meet a, an, an awful fate fairly soon mm-hmm. book uh, four so it's a, uh, it's another one of these ways uh, i think of kind of toying with the with the audience's expectations it's homer but it's it's homer in the mirror right yeah let's read a little bit of the latin here if i may uh, lines 19 and following Go and then it. maybe you can give us uh, some of the lombardo so he says uh, progeniem sedanim troiana sanguinaduki Audirat tiraso lim quae virtuit arces, hinc papalum later regem bello qua superbum, ventur rex cidio libi ai, sic vovera parcas. And here's Stanley Lombardo's translation. But she had heard that a sign of Trojan blood would someday level Carthage's citadel, that a Trojan people and imperial power would destroy Libya, so the parcae were spinning out fate. Hmm. Spinning out fate. Spinning out fate. Now, why, I can, this puzzles me. Okay. Juno, if anyone should know, um, what we refer to on this podcast is, as the rule of oracles. Right? right. If fate has said this is going to happen, why bother? Right. Well, because it is her, um, it's her fate. She has to do it, right? People can only act in character. <laughs> is, that, is that the answer? Yes. Okay. So right. here's an example. You yeah. know, uh, you're going to go for a run, Right. Because, you know, it's it's summertime here in Michigan, more or less. You yeah. You want to get some... You know that at the end of the run, you're, you're going to be exhausted, mm-hmm. right? And there are going to be elements of the activity that you're going to deeply regret. Yes. But you have to do it anyway, because that's the kind of person you are. Ah, okay. Right? When the sun comes out and it, it looks, you know, like it's going to be a glorious day, you think... I've been inside all winter. It's time to get some exercise. Right, exactly. So, because that's that's what you do, right? Yeah. Um, so you kind of mix that with a kind of, I think also kind of a general self-loathing, right? <laughs> but I, I thought, no, maybe that's I like that answer. I mean, so Juno does this um, in the face of things that she knows she, that ultimately this is going to fail, right? But she has to do it anyway. It's because who she is, right? And I think also we've talked about also in in other podcasts uh, um, about kind of the notion of fate is that you know. Point A is going to get to point B, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of wiggle room that can happen between those. That's right. And so it's almost like this Juno says, well, if that, if I if I got to accept point B, I'm going to take down as many people as I can. That's between, right. I'm going to make it as miserable as possible, and there's some victory in that. Yes. It's the villain in the movie, yeah. right? Who knows he's going to lose, but he's going to cause as much carnage as he can yes. before he is ultimately hauled off to his fate. So Juno's kind of like the Joker. Yeah, so I, I think it's going to cause mayhem. Yes, and carnage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have a mention of the fates here, right? The parkai. Parkai. Yep. So in in Greek, these are the moirai, and there are three of them. So the word that um, 
what what is the word that Lombardo uses? Spin, right? Yeah. So the 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 fates spin. Yes. And that's because there's this weaving metaphor. The, the Latin is volvera. So the this is how the this is how the fates roll. Yeah. So I think this of is the, how they roll. Yeah, I think of the <laughs> fates sitting in a, a cabriolet or something like that. What is that half truck half? El Camino? El Camino, yeah. yes. I think of the fates sitting in an El Camino, just like dri- all driving. All three of them like on that front bench. Seat. Exactly, yeah. just driving around, making decisions. But it's it's Clotho, Spinner, Lachesis, Allotter, and Atropus, the, the sister who the cutter. cuts the thread at yes. the end, right? Yeah, yeah. And so a really important theme in the Aeneid is that um, Jupiter is himself subject to the fates. Yes. And so here you see a little bit of something like monotheism or stoic determinism overshadowing the Homeric world. Yeah. Because you don't really have that in, in Homer, in the no. Iliad. Or it, at, at best, it's it's fuzzy, right? Exactly. There are things in the in the Iliad where, um, where Zeus basically, he decides to allow his son Sarpedon to die because Hera, right. Hera tells him, Hey, this is this is guy's fate. Mm-hmm. But there is the suggestion that if Zeus really wanted to, he could strong arm it. He could strong arm it, or even many of the other gods. I mean, Hera says, like, listen, if you do that, we're all going to want to strong arm the fate. That's right. That's a good point. And there's the other scene too, where we see Zeus dishing out things from the the jars in the left hand, right hand side of, right. of his throne, which kind of makes him synonymous with fate. But Homer's all over the map. Correct. But with the Romans, it's there's a very clear yes. uh, org chart. Yes. Yeah. Org chart? Yes. Okay. So we have the park eye at the top. That's right. And Zeus underneath that and, and so on and so forth. Okay. So an org chart, I'm not familiar with this term. Like, so if you want to, like, like in, if you want to see how a company is, is organized, like, okay, who's the, who's the head honcho okay. and who are the lesser honchos? Right. So how does it work here at Ad Nauseam headquarters? Uh, like who's the honcho? Who's the honcho? I, I, want, to, I just kind of, I want to keep saying the word honcho. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's Portuguese. It is Portuguese. Yes. Yes. So Juno... Is um, she's subject to fate, but she also, I think, like a Homeric character, also would know, like a, or like an, an Oedipus mm. might know. There's lots of things you can do um, and, uh, before that fate comes to comes to to uh, to bear. Yeah, yeah. So should we talk a little bit about uh, her anger about the events of Troy before we go to the break? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Okay. So she was afraid of this line twenty three, right? And uh, remembering. Uh, remembering that ancient war that had been fought at Troy on behalf of her dear Argive. She loves those Greeks. But this is the part I think is really interesting. Um, Hell hath no fury, says uh, Shakespeare like a woman scorned. Yes. This is what really made her angry, right? Line 27. A eudicium paradispretae quinuria formae. That Paris didn't think she was all that easy on the eyes. Yes, right. So how does Lombardo construe that? He translates... The goddess brooded on this and on the Trojan War, which she herself, Saturnian Juno, had waged on behalf of her beloved Greeks, ever mindful of the judgment of Paris, the cause of the war, and her savage grief over her beauty scorned by that hateful race. Mm. So she doesn't blame, just blame Paris, she blames the whole yeah. the whole race. That's to really hold a grudge, isn't it? Right. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, you know... Christian forgiveness no, in, in these poems. Pretty much none. You get a grudge, you hold it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but let, let's just recap that that story of the judgment of Paris. Yes, the uh, wedding of Peleus and Thetis. Right. So, um, the way the story usually goes is that you know this is the social event of the year. Everybody's invited, humans and gods alike. Um, but the one goddess who's not invited is um, strife. Yeah, Eris. Eris. Discordia in Latin. Yeah. So she gets her revenge by inscribing on a golden apple. 
uh, for the fairest. Yes. Kaliste. 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 Kaliste in Greek. And throws it amongst the, the goddesses, knowing their vanity. Right. They're all going to squabble about it. They're dressed to the nines. Oh, yeah. This, everybody, everybody's there to see and to be seen. Exactly. And um, it comes down to the big three. Um, let's, let's use the Roman names since we're okay. in there. Minerva, Venus, and Juno. Mm-hmm. And they can't, no, none of them is going gonna, is gonna to back down. They, right. They all want the apple. Correct. And Jupiter originally is compelled to decide, but he's too wise. So he hands it off to uh, his friend Mercury. Yeah. Who then takes the golden apple off to Mount Ida, where uh, Paris is, and makes Paris decide. And he doesn't want to either because he's too wise. He's, and and he, he knows that what by picking one goddess, you're insulting two. Exactly. You cannot win. Cannot win. Right. And so um, each of the goddesses bribes, tra- attempts to bribe Paris. Usually it's kind of in accordance with their... Sphere of influence. Yes, right? and this is really fascinating because the bribe that Juno offers is military power. Yeah. The bribe that, uh, no, I'm sorry, is political power. Yeah. The bribe that Minerva offers is military, military power. power. The bribe that Venus offers is beauty, beauty. love, pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so what does Paris choose? He chooses um, beauty, love, and pleasure. Yeah, so do you think this is saying something about human beings broadly and maybe men in particular? Well, I think that it's... Uh, it's a very masculine bribe. Yes. Right? And so, they're, they're, so would you rather command an army, you know, be mayor of Grand Rapids or, you know, whatever the third thing is? Right. Well, I, I think what we know about Paris is that, um, uh, 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 sorry, Minerva and Juno didn't know Paris very well. Okay. Right? He's, he, he has this reputation as a playboy. Right. Um, and it's Venus who can kind of zero in on what he, what he really wants. Mm. Right. Uh, I guess maybe, you know, Minerva could think that, well, if he has military power, then the love and pleasure will follow. Yes, but those are the questions that you're not supposed to ask. Those are like biologicals. Exactly. Exactly. Why didn't he wear thicker? Why didn't Achilles just wear some thick boots? Thick boots. Some, some put on some, strap on some Merrells, right? Correct. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You're not supposed to ask that. Right. Um, So he chooses uh, Venus and Venus, you know, promises him the love of the most beautiful woman in the world. But of course, there's always a catch. Right. Unfortunately, she's already married. Right. Married. Not only that, to the but to the host of the party. That's right. And um, and then it all the the dominoes start to fall from mm. there. And so uh, Juno never forgets this insult. Yeah. She's been carrying this wound all these years, and she doesn't blame just Paris. She blames uh, Paris and all of the other Trojans that he's related to and and uh, um, kin to. Yeah. You don't seem like a grudge carrier. I'm not a grudge carrier. No, you're very good at uh, unloading grudges. Though it, I will, I do have these like these stoplight moments where really where I'll, I'll think back to like something that happened like in third grade. What what is a stoplight moment? Is that on the org chart? Because you're losing me. Again. Oh, I mean, like, don't you ever have it like you're like stuck at a stoplight and you, you might not have the radio on and your mind right. just kind of wanders and for whatever reason it just lands on something weird. Maybe this is just me. Yeah. But I'll think back to something that happened like in 1981. I'll think, ah, why did I say that? <laughs> yeah, but that's more about regret. It maybe it, it is regret, or if it's something, or it's not grudge. It's or, uh, maybe a kid that was like bullying me. I, I right. realize, well, you know, I'm not. I'm still not over that. <laughs> so maybe I am carrying these small little grudges. Yeah, but not not on this Olympian scale. No, I have I have those big regret moments. I don't have. Um, and I tend to carry grudges probably more than you do, but why are you laughing? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But you, you know what I'm talking about, the regret moment? Yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, you know, I've held my, my I've held grudges and, and some that have been easier and, and more difficult to let go. Right. I, I can relate to this. But Juna has no regrets. For her, it's all grudge it's all, all the grudge time. It's all grudge all the time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Speaking of grudges, uh, it's time for our commercials. <laughs> 
This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Mishka. We need a drum roll here. Thank you, Mishka. <laughs> Why do we need a drum roll, Jeff? Because we got a new sponsor. That's a brand right. new sponsor? Yes. This is a, a local firm, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Here in the great state of Michigan. Yes. Pop City Popcorn. Pop City Popcorn down in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yes. One of my favorite uh, cities to say. Kalamazoo? I mean, how, can, how can you not enjoy saying Kalamazoo? Uh, it's, it's incredible. And yeah. how can you not enjoy this amazing popcorn? So our friends down there at Pop City Popcorn, they have been uh, popping this extraordinary gourmet popcorn down in Kalamazoo. Uh, they've been selling it out of their store, and they've just decided that they are going to ship this around the country, around this great continent. Yes, fantastic. You know, I am... I consider myself um, a, a fairly sophisticated popcorn connoisseur. Yes. I love popcorn. I do too. So I was prepared to be disappointed. You really? I was. So it, when I first told you about this brand new sponsor, you thought, okay, Dave, we'll, we'll give it a go, but come on. Right. I mean, you've seen these specialty stores. And, yeah. it's, and so I was skeptical, but you know, I got to say, having, having sampled it, it's incredible. It is really incredible popcorn. The sheer number of, of flavors and styles that, um, that they have... Um, my boys loved the the Parmesan yes. one. And did you know that the the cheese on this popcorn, all of the cheese, it is not powder. It's actual grated cheese. It's the real deal. It's incredible. And you take a few bites, you can you can absolutely tell. Yes. Yes. The bacon cheddar, oh, that was just phenomenal. A combination of white cheddar popcorn and cheddar mixed with a smoky bacon seasoning. Yep. Uh, my wife particularly enjoyed the the uh, the dill pickle. Oh, really? Yes, I thought that was com- coming out, out that came out of left field. She really liked that. Yeah, my uh, my my boys loved the the sweet ones, the two way drizzle. That's the, correct. The, the rainbow popcorn. The rainbow popcorn. Yeah. And the, the caramel corn. This is this is no you no know, jacker cracks. No, this, no. This is, <laughs> jacker cracks. This is a, this is amazing stuff. Yeah, and they like the uh, a big hit in my family was the chocolate peanut butter. Oh yeah. Put that on popcorn. They have a bronco mix because they're located there in in Kalamazoo. So, you know, they're attached to the uh, Central Michigan University. Western Michigan. I'm sorry. Yes. Whoops. <laughs> Western Michigan. Yep. They supply all the popcorn for the football season. Fabulous. For uh, Western Michigan. So, you know, they can pop a lot of corn. Yes. So, uh, listeners, if you're interested, and you should be. You ought to be. Uh, you ought to be. Uh, go to popcitypopcorn.com. That's right. Uh, find the, uh, it, you're going to you're gonna be there a while. Yes, because they're an amazing selection of flavors. Yep. Um, but uh, you can choose your uh, whatever you want to throw into your little satchel there. That's right. Um, they, and- they pop only. I know you're trying to get to the code. Yes. But I got more to say. Oh, please go, go, go. They pop only non-GMO popcorn yep. seed in coconut oil. Delicious. The caramel corn is made with real butter, brown sugar, and Madagascar vanilla. My goodness. They go all the way to the east coast of Africa to get this vanilla and put it on the popcorn. That's the real deal. It's incredible. So what is the coupon code? So if they drop in the coupon code A-N-P-O-P and pop. Yes. Ad nauseum pop 20. And they'll get uh, 20% off uh, their their first order. Yes. Every first time order. Now, this is really living the ad nauseum life, isn't it? It is. You get some good books from Hackett. Yep. You get a cup of coffee. Going to need some napkins, I have to say. Oh, definitely. For the popcorn. <laughs> I like to eat popcorn when I'm reading a book, but I mean, we're in napkin territory now, right? The napkin and bib territory. The napkin and bib, maybe yeah. like a whole body bib. Because <laughs> yes. you're really going to want to enjoy this popcorn. Yeah, you this just is, can't hold back. This isn't stuff you just you throw into your mouth absentmindedly. No, no. This is like a course of its own that you want to focus on. It takes commitment. Yep. So check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing has been in the 
book publishing business for, I think this is their 50th year? Absolutely. Yep, this is their 50th, 50th year anniversary. Um, they have uh, offices located in Indianapolis, Indiana, also in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we love these guys. They've been with us since the very beginning. That's right. They, uh, when we were um, just this, just an idea on the back porch. Correct. They were, they were all in. They were there. They were there. And um, we've talked at, at, at we have talked ad nauseum how we, how much we've we've loved their translations, how much we've used them in our classes, um, how much we uh, love having them on our shelves at home. In fact, I'm looking at. Uh, Stanley Lombardo's translation of uh, Virgil's Aeneid, which is published by Hackett. Correct. And they've got another one of those wonderful um, um, uh, corollaries, to historical corollaries. On the cover? On the yeah, co- tell us about on that. On the cover, it's uh, you know, faded. In, in, from the background, we see um, the names from the Vietnam War, War Memorial uh-huh. uh, from Washington, D.C., Huh. And so it just like the like the Iliad has the storming of of, of Normandy right on there. It's a and the Odyssey has the moon landing. The moon, right? the moon landing. This is a kind of a, um, a, a very solemn, you know, sad, um, um, uh, compelling remembrance of war. Right. Yep. Uh, very nicely done. Very nicely done. It's so artful. It, it's so subtle. Um, but but, if you but they ha- but they have. I'm sorry. Go go, go ahead. No. But they have not only um, uh, Stan Lombardo's Aeneid. Yeah, by Virgil. They also have the new one by Len Krizak, which is a rhyming one that we've used a little bit, and we're going to use more. Yeah, uh, so interesting. I love that the publisher takes a chance on on these many different things. They don't just kind of stick to one Correct. one translator for one work and and, and move on. Um, listener, go to hackatpublishing.com and just scroll through their their catalog. Uh, it's incredible. Yes, h a c k e t t publishing.com. When you find the book or books that you'd like. Put them in your grocery basket yep. uh, next to the the popcorn and the boiled cheese and so forth. Yes. And uh, then when you get to checkout, you're going to want to use this coupon code. Yes, it's ANCO5J. That's not the right one. That's not the right one? That's for racial coffee. Sorry. That would be AN2022. That's right. Okay. Should we leave that in? Yeah, let's leave it in. We're it's human. It's late. We right. are human. Yes. So AN2022, and that will get you 20% off your entire order and free shipping. Yes. And speaking of ANCO5J, yes, as we just were, this episode is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee. Yes. I have one of their machines and you I do. love it. Is yes. it the 5? Is it the 4? I have the uh what is it? Do I have it's I, the Racial 6? The Racial 6. Yes. Yes. All right. So You feeling all right, Jeff? I'm, I'm a little I I was thrown by getting the wrong code. That's okay. I'm back on track now. Okay. But Dave, tell us something about um what other people have said about uh, the ratio coffee. Right. So this is a little review by a woman named Felicia Kluwer. It's from Seattle Coffee Gear. And she says, now there's a handsome brewer. The ratio eight edition coffee maker marries pour over with automatic functionality. We've categorized this coffee maker as a drip brewer, but we feel it deserves classification as an automatic pour over. To start, the Ratio 8 edition performs a proper bloom that completely stops the flow of water for 30 seconds. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible. That was that we've been talking. That's the key. Exactly. Tell us, Jeff, what do you think about the bloom cycle? The bloom cycle is still something that mystifies me. Okay. Right. It's this short. Uh, it's this. It's this short stage before the real kind of bubbling and brewing. That's begins. right. But it. It. Um, there's lots of off gassing. Yes. I understand that goes on. Um, all the the toxic stuff that that you're going to find in your usual scorch patter. That's right. Um, it's gone. The Kindle brick underneath, keeping things hot. It's, we don't want to. We don't want to drink that. No, not at all. Right. So it's. 
it, it struck me as you were reading that is that you know as we were talking that uh, you know uh, with uh, Virgil he's so uh, subsumed Homer that you don't know where the Homer ends and Virgil begins That's here. Right. Where does the pour over end and the automatic functionality begin? Yeah, I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Even Felicia can't figure it out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, wrapped in enigma, wrapped in a flagon. Exactly right. A yeah. hulking flagon. A hulking flagon. So it goes down in there, and yep. then you've got good coffee drinking for hours. For hours, right? It's amazing how long that that uh, carafe. Uh, keeps things heated. So I can't recommend these machines highly enough. I love my six. I know you love your eight. I do. Yes. I like the oyster with the walnut accents. Yep. It's a beautiful work of art, really, on my countertop. Right. So listeners, if you want one of these machines, either the six or the eight, um, go to ratiocoffee.com and uh, pick the one you want and you can put in the code. I'm going to try to redeem myself here. Okay. It's A-N-C-O- 5J. That's correct. Yes. Ad nauseum coffee 5J. And you will get 15% off your brilliant coffee maker. This thing will last you um, at least one generation. Yeah, it's an, it's an heirloom. You won't regret it. Check it out. So, Jeff, as we get back into the episode now, yep. we have to take a look at Juno's first action on the big stage. Right. And it's um, it's a big one. It's, That's right. Uh, it's, uh, we're talking about the storm. Right. She's going to provoke a storm. Now, the storm is a set piece of epic. We have the great storm in the Odyssey that swamps uh, Odysseus. We've got the storms in Apollonius of Rhodes, the Argonautica. Mm-hmm. This is the set piece of epic. you got to have a big natural cataclysm or disaster to challenge the hero. That's right. And uh, Virgil gives, this to it, gives it to us early on. Exactly. And so um, Juno is upset. She sees the ships of Aeneas and company crashing through the briny foam, you know, making their way to Italy mm-hmm. with the bronze cleaving the waves and so forth. And she just has a fit. Yep. So she calls on Oh, the guy that you want in your corner for something like this. That's a- right. Aeolus, the, uh, the king of the god of the winds. That's correct. She has this, you know, little, uh, I don't know, she's quite angry here. Azteco quite win que regina you wisque. Look, I'm the sister and the wife of Jupiter, and I have to put up with this stuff? How come I can't, uh, you know, just overthrow this tiny little people that's making their ways, right. make, making their way to Italy? Why can't they know when they're beaten? Right, right, right. And so she she um she pulls rank on on Aeolus. I mean, That's so right. Aeolus is is a god, but he's he's way down the org chart. Yes, yeah. way down the way org, down the org chart. chart. He reigns in the land of Aeolia. I wonder where that name came from. Aeolia. Yeah. Oh, he's named after Aeolus. Oh, that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. Like the plate, like you call, you know, your domain, Jeffreyana. Uh, exactly. It's not very popular in my household. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Bring me my slippers. I am the king of, of Jeffreyana. <laughs> So where does uh, Aeolus, where does he reign? What's, what's the description of his kingdom and what it's like? Here, I'll read uh, Lombardo's translation. Uh, her heart inflamed, the goddess went to Aeolia, a country of clouds and raging winds. Here in a vast cave, Aeolus rules the squalls and gales, keeping them chained in vaulted cells. The indignant winds roar at their prison doors, rumbling deep in the mountain. But Aeolus sits on high with his scepter, and with his scepter calms their frenzied souls. If he did not... They would swoop over land and sea and through the deep sky, sweeping everything before them. Fearing just this, the Father Almighty hid them away in dark caves and piled them, uh, and piled above them a mountain massive. And he gave them a king, one who would know by chartered agreement when to restrain and when to unleash them. That's really nicely done. That's a great translation. And I think he, he goes well beyond what, what I'm remembering Homer gives us of Aeolus from the Odyssey. Oh, yes. Um, it it's, uh, it kind of reminds me in some ways of 
of Circe, you know, a minor deity who's got who's in charge of her, of you know her, or in this case, his own small weirdo little kingdom. Right. Yeah, but but ends up playing a big role. Yeah, but a very big role. So then Juno says to him, "Iola nam to be di wam paterat rex." She comes to him with a bribe, basically. Mm-hmm. This is what I want you to do. I hate these people, this hated race, this Genzinamika. It's headed to, to uh, Tyranum, and I want to stop them and swamp them. And yeah. so I need your help, Eolus. Right. So she, she wants the, 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 your basic stomp and swamp. That's right. Yeah. But it comes with the bribe. And what I find so interesting about this bribe is that it is thoroughly Roman. Do tell. Well, I'd like to read a couple of lines of the uh, Latin, and then maybe we can get the Lombardo and talk about it. Sure. So she says, Sunt mihi bis septem prestanti corpora nymphae, quadrum quae forma pulcherrima de iopea, connubio jungam stabili propriamque de cabo, omnisut te cum meritis protalibus annos, exigadet pulcra faciat te prola parentem. All right, and Lombardo translates uh, this as, I have 14 nymphs with lovely bodies, the most radiant of which, uh, Deopea, I will pronounce your wife to have and to hold in return for this favor. She will live with you all her years and bear you beautiful children. Yes. Isn't that a Roman bribe? Oh, how, how so exactly? Well, because it's a promise of marital bliss and good children. So it's getting back to what we were saying at the beginning here. It's about, it's about family. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Would the Greeks go for a bribe like this? Is is this an appealing bribe to Odysseus? Well, I, you know, I think that, you know, the the um, you know kind of the you know the bride stealing motif um, that we see in in tales like in the Homeric legends, the um, you know captive women as prizes. But this goes beyond that. It does. This is marriage. This is marriage. This is marriage and children. Stable marriage for many years and lovely offspring. It's not just a um, a token of your your victory in this this one affair. No, yeah. it's it seems to me like it is presenting a picture of domestic bliss hmm. that would only be appealing to uh, a Roman, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it strikes me as um, I, I mean, I, maybe I think Virgil's maybe having some fun here, but. Isn't Juno doing exactly what Venus did with Paris? Yes. Like, give me the apple and, you know, you'll, you'll get this woman. That's very insightful. I never thought of that before. But with the, the added note, I think it's also, you know, Juno, one of her, her functions, of course, is, is a goddess of, of marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And so she gives kind of the, the Venusian bribe, um, but it's not just, um, hey, you, you two crazy kids run off together. No, right. this is going to be uh, a, a great marriage with children. That's right. A permanent arrangement. Yeah. So Aeolus goes for it, and he says, "Yours, queen, is to command; mine is to obey." Right, he, that's fine. Yeah, there's nothing he can't he can't uh, he can't turn this down. No, so he takes his spear and he reverses it, and he thumps the side of the mountain uh, with the the shaft of the spear. It's such a great line: "The kawam montem conversa cuspide." Yeah, and out come pouring the winds. You know, they come marching out like something from Fantasia, right? Yeah. They all come marching out in array. Right. And we just saw that you know, he, uh, Virgil describes them as he keeps them kind of chained in their own little That's chambers. Right. And here he's kind of letting them all out. Yes. Agamena facto. They form up a column and out come the winds and they just destroy everything and turn it upside down. Now, I love a good storm description. Oh, this is this is fantastic. It is phenomenal. Do you like a good storm description? I like a I like a good storm. Okay. Yeah. Um, when I used to have this a, a CD in my grad school days, the only way I could go to sleep if it... It had like four storms from the Rocky Mountains. That That's a little disturbing. Do they sound different in the Rockies than in the Appalachians? Um, I, I, it was booming. It was deep. It was huh. epic. 
Um, but I, I couldn't, there was a time where I could not fall asleep without um, hearing the sound of a, of a raging thunderstorm. Hmm. So I'm, I love a good storm and yeah, a description. I think, and this is, this is, I think this is as good, if not better than, than anything along the same, these same lines that we get in Homer. It's, it's phenomenal. It, it occupies phenomenal. lines uh, 81 through 91. If you're following each of the four winds is mentioned right in there is the crashing and the sound and the cries of men and the ropes, right? The insequitur, clamorquerum, stidorque, rudentum. All of this is just going to mayhem. And in the midst of it now, we get finally the titular hero. Finally shows up. Yep. And um, it's not a very uh, heroic, chest-thumping uh, picture that we get. No, it, it is not a grand entrance. He's terrified. He's terrified. Um, Lombardo, let me give the translation All here. Right. So um, Aeneas's limbs suddenly went numb with cold. He groaned and lifting both palms to heaven, he said... Three times, four times luckier were those who died before their parents' eyes under Troy's high walls. O Diomedes, bravest of the Greeks, if only I had been killed by your right hand in Ilium's plain, where Hector went down under Achilles' spear, where huge Sarpedon lies, where the Samoyus rolls so many shields and helmets caught in its current in the bodies of so many brave heroes. Yeah, that's incredible. Right. Especially this, the Samoyus River here in line 100, right? I have this picture. The first time I read this line, I was an undergraduate. I was using Clyde Farr. Uh, the purple edition of Aeneid 1 through 6. I know it well. And uh, probably reading Fitzgerald translation, I don't remember. But I had this picture of this river, the Samoas River, just stuffed with corpses. Yeah. And uh, I could see in my mind's eye, you know, these huge men who are kind of trapped underwater, dead, like they're trapped under ice, looking up at the sky, you know, as they're their uh, galei, you know, their helmets and their shields roll by and there are their bodies. Yeah. So evocative. Su- such a powerful evocative image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think this is where Virgil is at his at his best. Absolutely. No, I, I, I love that idea. And then, you know, coupled with this idea that Aeneas is saying, I would, I'd rather be dead. Yes. I, I, you know, I, I would have rather have kind of lost the duel back on the plains of Troy then go down like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather be killed by Diomedes. Yes, yeah, it's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you pair that with the um, you know the first time we see Odysseus, Odysseus in the Odyssey is in Book Five, mm-hmm. and he's kind of again. I think that Homer's borrowing something here. It's not a very heroic picture. He's kind of slumped over on the shores of Calypso's island, and he's he's weeping and he's blubbering, bawling his eyes out. Uh, but um, again, Virgil, I think maybe borrows that um, that paradox of we see the the um the hero in a moment of of kind of maybe unmanliness and then turns it up to 11 here mm. yeah mm. so i've done a little bit of public speaking you know in my life and something that people have occasionally commented on is adjectives mm-hmm. um it's not that i'm very good at it but good adjectives make for interesting speech and interesting writing yeah and uh everything i know about adjectives i've learned from Virgil, because he he just has an amazing way with adjectives. His language is so beautifully descriptive. Yeah. All right. So this is the time where Neptune shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, he also pulls rank. He That's right. He sticks up his briny um, algae-covered head out of the water, takes yes. a look around, and he doesn't like what he sees. No, it's like a it's like a periscope yeah. comes up the the placidum <laughs> caput. He surveys the terrain and what's going on here. Right. This is my job. Exactly. What, and so. Uh, he he forcibly um, makes Aeolus back down, calms the the storm. Maybe he's making up for chucking Aeneas back in the Iliad. Uh, oh, that was a that was a move of rescue. I mean, it was a little bit uh, 
dishonorable for Aeneas, but it was uh, motivated by love. It was, but uh, maybe he felt maybe the chucking was too much. Maybe so. Right. So he calms the, the waves and pushes the, 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 uh, the crew, the fleet, uh, towards the shores of North Africa. Yes. And that is where um, we're going to pick it up next time. That's correct. And so just to give a little taste, this is where uh, Aeneas uh, finally meets up with his, his mom, yes. Venus. He meets in disguise. In disguise. We don't want to give that away. Nope. Uh, he's going to meet up with his um, his soon-to-be girlfriend in Carthage. Dido. Dido. Or Alyssa, her uh, other name. That's right. Um, all kinds of great stuff to, to, to get into. The fantastic scene where he sees pictures of the Trojan War oh, yes. displayed on the architecture of Carthage, including himself. He's like he's seeing he's seeing the movie made of his life already already complete. It's shocking. And then when he sees himself, it's six more months of winter. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Uh, but that's for the next episode. Yes, it is. But um, So we got to get out of here. But yes, Dave, we before do. we do so, can right. you tell us something about the Moss Method? Yeah, I would love to tell you uh, the truth about it, which is that it is, to my knowledge, the most comprehensive, self-paced, expert, and accessible Greek program available online. So there are a lot of people teaching Greek, some of them well, I would say, some of them maybe not so well. This one's comprehensive. So you, you purchase the Moss method for $299. Uh, June 1, it's going up to $325. We've got to fight inflation. Yep. And uh, you get access to 40 videos, 40 assignments, six quizzes, two uh, exams. Plus, you get all of my expertise once per week in the Moss Method office hours. This teaches you Attic Greek. So you can read. Uh, Plato and Demosthenes and Xenophon. You can dabble in Homer. It'll also teach you New Testament. And I really think it is uh, very comprehensive and thorough. It will take you from neophyte to erudite, right? Nice job. Exactly. Yeah. That's the plan. So you you want you don't want to miss out. No. And so um, listeners can check out mossmethod.com. That's correct. And you got some free stuff there? Lots of free stuff. Okay. I, I have lessons on uh, most every author you can think of in the you know the major corpus. I've got Homer. I've got Oedipus. Lots of Xenophon. I've got Plato. Uh, all of First and Second Corinthians I've analyzed, the Septuagint from Genesis, Old Testament. There's a lot of free stuff. You can also sign up for the course. Fantastic. Dave, tell, also tell us about a little bit LLPSI. Yeah, so I'm teaching Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Uh, we're finishing up Unit 1, which is chapters 1 through 9 of the Familia Romana book. And uh, this is also learn at your own pace, but it's guided. So I'm not going to leave you without help. I've recorded all nine chapters, uh, first nine chapters, audio. You can listen to the audio recording of the Latin um, piecemeal, or you can put them all together and download it all at once, plus assignments and instructional videos and weekly interaction in our office hours. And this program costs only $199. Fantastic. And where can they go to find this? So that's latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. Excellent. Check it out. Well, Dave, we got to go. Um, yes. we got, but as always, we got some people to thank. Absolutely. Who, who should we thank? I want to thank Mishka Fernando uh, for doing such an incredible job as our sound engineer. And she putting is, up with uh, us. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Brilliant work. So grateful for that. Uh, Ken Tamplin, Vocal Academy, has given us the, the intro music and the bumper music. And uh, who's that guy that plays that brilliant Van Halen guitar? That would be Scott Vinzen. Oh, incredible. Who I want to meet someday. you got to introduce me to these guys. I met, uh, I met Scott. I you know, know you have. And and, you uh, you I, often mention it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I vacationed with Ken. We got to spend some time in yeah, Greece together. Yeah, you mentioned together. that a, a yeah, few times I, okay. as well. Right. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, so what if we want to get uh, some folks uh, lined up for shout-outs? What should they do? Well, they should send us a note either to myself at jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or they can write to you, Dave, at dave at adnauseum.com. 
gmail.com. Also, don't forget the V. Correct. We'd like to hear suggestions for episodes. We would like to give you a shout out. We can take some criticism. We can certainly take praise. Uh, whatever you'd like to share with us. Yeah, give us some ideas. What do you like? What, what don't you like? What do you want to see and hear more of? So next week, Dave, we're going to continue um, our look at the second half of of, uh, of Aeneid one. That's right. Um, maybe just the, like the ne- if it's if it were up to you, maybe only like the next thirty lines. Yeah, maybe twenty nine. Even <laughs> right, right. But we're gonna we're gonna continue our our look at this fascinating uh, Roman epic. Yeah, we don't want to rush it. Nope. Uh, and Dave, I believe you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. This is from a fellow named Nigel Slater. Yes. Uh, I think that must be a British name. Sounds like it. Uh, the title of the work is Notes from the Larder. Ooh. You got a larder? I do. I don't. Was that just a place you keep fat? You keep bacon in your larder. In your larder? I don't have it's a larder. It's pretty good. You should get a larder <laughs> with an epoxy floor. It's called Notes from the Larder: A Kitchen Diary with Recipes. All right. And here's the quote: A casserole of oxtail and prunes. This gives a perfect quantity for two. I would have done the recipe for four, but can't imagine ever getting four oxtail-loving people around the table at the same time. <laughs> well said, Nigel. How do you feel about an oxtail, Jeff? I, I'm, I'm a fan. So there's two. We got two. There's we just two. need two more oxtailers and we got a table. And we'll get in touch with Mr. Nigel then. That's right. Thanks for listening. Thank you.